Good morning, as Pastor Bill said, my name is Luke Pauley, and it's good to be with you all this morning. Usually I'm down in the K-Hall service down the hall, and so I guess Pastor Chad was gone, and I knew that, and I just thought I'd sneak on in here. But it's good to be with you this morning. We're gonna continue on in our study in the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter six. Pastor Chad began that message for us last week with verses one through 11, and that was really part one. That was part one to a two-part story, and today we're gonna be looking at part two and the culmination of all that David did. And as we saw last week, David had some good intentions mixed with some improper methods of moving the Ark of the Covenant, so he had a good idea, not exactly the best execution of the plan, and a man died because of that. And as I was studying this, I was reminded of how often I get started with something, and I think I've got good intentions, I think I've got a good plan, and I think I know what I'm doing, and then I found out I don't. Back in March, we bought our first home, and I can't tell you how many, <laughs> usually they're pretty simple projects too, it's not like I'm doing anything crazy, but you know, you start out with that and you get going, and uh, a couple trips to Home Depot later, uh, once they know you're on a first name basis, you know you're doing great, and then, you know, you get the project done, but usually before that, I'm YouTubing stuff, or if I really have to swallow my pride, I call my dad and say, hey, dad, I know you taught me how to do that, but I wasn't paying attention, and, and now here I am. And so it's a reminder that so often in life, because we're human beings, we get started. We get started off, and we don't always get started in the right way, but we're gonna see today, through the example of David, that even when we start off, guess what, even if we mess it up, we serve a God who is quick and he loves to forgive, he's quick to forgive us, and we can always get right on the right path with him So, in so much as we look at his word and submit to him. So with these things in mind, let me pray, and we're gonna begin our way to work through the text. God, we just thank you for today. We thank you that you did not leave us in darkness, but that you revealed yourself to us. And as you look at the life of David and we look at this great moment that we have coming up, God, I pray right now that we would not just view this as something that happened in the past, but that we would understand by the Holy Spirit you have preserved your word to us today so that as we study this, we can leave here changed and therefore we can love you. We can love you as you've designed and created us to love you. And then because of that, we can be a good example to those around us. We ask all of this in your name, amen. Well, just to recap, in case this is your first time joining with us, or if you're like me, you forget a lot of things, and so you always gotta have some review. And so last week, we saw David, and David has become king now of Israel for over 15 years. He fled from King Saul. King Saul was the king of Israel. He was not a king after God's own heart. He was a king after his own wicked heart. And as the reign of Saul progressed, it became more and more clear that he was not a follower of God, he was not a worshiper of God. He used religion, he used whatever he wanted to use to try to achieve his own means. And God, make, God makes it clear sometimes, doesn't he, that God does not like to be used that way, he will not be manipulated, and we will not be successful when we do that. And so it reaches a point where God says, Saul, I have rejected you, and I'm choosing a new king. And he, and he chooses King David who was the youngest of all of his brothers, and so the least likely to be king, he was a shepherd, and God says, I want a shepherd to be my king. And so he raises David up, and he makes promises to David, and he says, he anoints him king, and he says, you will be the shepherd over my people. But guess what? David has to spend 15 years waiting. I don't like waiting, I'm not very patient. That's probably why I always mess up our house projects, because I'm not patient to look things up. And David, he learns patience, because for over 15 years, he's running for his life, and there's a few times that it's looking pretty close. 
and yet God preserves him. God is faithful. And all throughout 1 Samuel, it seems like God's moving slowly and slowly and slowly. And then we get to 2 Samuel, and all of these promises that God has made, they're all coming to fruition in a quick hurry. And David is experiencing victory after victory after victory after victory. And he's experienced economic victory here recently. He's experienced military victory here recently. And now, guess what? He's gonna be experiencing spiritual victory. Victory. And so as because of all of those things, David understands that we've got to have the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, it's talked about some in 1 Samuel during the reign of Saul. It's, it's kind of used. But then if you, as you read 1 Samuel, you know what you hear less and less of? You hear less about God and you hear less about the Ark of the Covenant. And David is a new king. He's a different king. He's a king after God's own heart. And he understands the spiritual significance of having the Ark in the capital city of the nation of Israel because God had called out all the way back, right? Let's jump back to Abraham. God had called out Abraham. And he had made a covenant. He had made a promise with Abraham that through him, through his offspring, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just Abraham's offspring, but the whole world. And we see here today that David understood that. Furthermore, David understood what God had done through the life of Moses as Moses had led them out of the, the people of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt and led them into the promised land. God tells him on Mount Sinai that you will be a holy people. And David, he wants to make sure Saul, that was not his objective. He was not focused on God. He was not focused on worshiping God. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And David says, not anymore. I'm a different king, and I think David understood that. We're gonna see that today, but guess what? Because of that, he wanted to get the ark into the capital city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was sovereignly and strategically placed in the busiest area of the world. All the trade routes would go through right there, kind of what we know as the Fertile Crescent where Israel is, and of course, the capital city of Jerusalem would be there, and so if the ark of the covenant is in the capital city of the busiest nation, in the world, then doesn't that make sense to, to how God's glory and God's saving grace would be known throughout all the world? It would go through Israel, and that's why this is so significant and so important. And David understood that. But as we saw last week, as Pastor Chad led us through there, David didn't get started off right. How did he transport the Ark of the Covenant? He put it on a cart. And I'm not super smart, so I had to Google this, and I'm looking up all these passages, and nowhere in Leviticus or Numbers or anywhere in the Old Testament does not say anything about transporting the ark on, on a cart. Actually, it says the opposite. It says that the Levites were the ones to carry it. They were the ones to transport it. And if it wasn't them, then people always died. And so the Levites would do it, and the ark, it was just kind of a box and had these little hooks on it, and you would put the, some poles through it, and the Levites would hold it, and they'd carry it, and they would be underneath the ark which is significant, that they would be underneath the presence of God, submitting to him. But as we saw last week, the Levites aren't involved, and there's certainly no carrying it. There's rolling it. They're rolling it. And Uzzah, who it's clear from the text that we looked at last week, Uzzah thought a little, little too much of himself, and so as they're carting the Ark of the Covenant towards where it ought to go, they begin to stumble, the ark's about to fall, and Uzzah reaches out, and he touches it, and as he touches it, he dies. And God strikes him dead, because that is a holy ark, and you're not supposed to touch it. And we're left, last week we were left with David angry because of what God had done. He was angry because of the Lord's punishment to Uzzah. And then, the, where do they put the ark? They put it in the, the house of Obed-Edom. And that's what we know about Obed-Edom. 
He's, he's a guy with the ark in the garage, you know? They, they put it there, he's the one storing it. And so then as we begin here, we recognize that David understood the error of his ways and he sought God's word, and because of that, there's gonna be a far better change. So start with me, 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. For three months, three months, David is wrestling with God. He is working through, well, have you been there? Where God is working in your life and maybe you've made a mess of things? I know I've done it. And you're, work, like you're trying to figure out what you should do. You're setting God's word. You're praying to God. You're, you're asking for deliverance. You're asking for victory and you don't know what to do. For three months, David's waiting. And we don't really get an indication of what his thought process was, but we see the outcome of those three months. And I think it's safe to assume that he went back to God's word, he sought God's ways, and because of that, he was able to be victorious in what they do here. And so verse 12 is a summary verse. It tells us from the beginning here that they are successful. All right, so as we read through these verses, as we look at what David did, as we look at what he did that he didn't do the previous time, we need to be reminded that they are victorious. And these then are good examples for us, all right? Sometimes you read about the life of David or another character in the Bible, and as you're reading, you're, you're trying to discern, hey, is what they're doing here good or bad? Should we do that? Well, with David, what we see here is that what he did was after God's will. Verse 13 says this, and so it was, that when the bears of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. After six steps, you know what they did not do the previous time? You can look back at verses one through 11. You know what they did not do? They did not offer any sacrifices. They were supposed to. God commanded sacrifices. They didn't do that. And that was just another error that they did. And so here they're making it clear. Six paces, that's not very far, all right? Six paces, they're stopping. They're making sacrifices. And they're making sure that God knows and that their hearts are right. They're making sure that their hearts are right. And I'm assuming there's probably a few people, I would have been one of these people, that you're kind of like standing back from where all the, you know, all the main action is and you're kind of looking around to make sure nobody else falls dead, all right? Everyone's nervous, everyone's scared. And they're sacrificing. They are approaching God the way that God said to approach him. That's not what they did previously. And you and I far too often, we don't approach God the way that we ought to, but here we see that they do. And so after six steps, after six paces, they make sacrifices to God. Verse 14 says, and David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and David is wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of trumpet. We get a picture, right? You got the whole nation involved here. You got tons of people that are all involved in this procession. The Levites are carrying the ark. There's dancing, there's celebration. And the king, David himself, is dancing. And the word that's used there, it's used both in verse 14 and verse 16. It has to do with whirling. And I'm not, I'm not a dancer, don't worry. Um, but you can ask my wife. Sometimes, you know, you go to a wedding, and um, not one that's held, you know, at a church. But, you know, you go to the little reception afterwards, all right, where sometimes there's some dancing, and, you know, it's, it's an innocent stuff or whatever. But my wife reminds me that, that dancing is not my thing. Uh, but, hey, I'll give it a try, you know. Uh, but I know this much. When the Chiefs win or when something we're really excited about goes on and, and we're, we're pumped up, we kind of just don't care what other people think. Trust me, I've seen, I've seen how some Chiefs fans act that are usually normal, really quiet and reserved. And you know, when we win the Super Bowl, which you know, done a couple times, what do you do? Well, you see a lot of people jumping up, whirling around and making a, a good fool of themselves, all right? And that's kind of what David's doing. But far much more here, because we see that he was dancing before the Lord, 
with all of his might. You know what is not mentioned in the previous attempt? Well, there was no mention of David or anybody dancing before the Lord with all their might. What David is doing, he's not doing it for attention. He's not doing it to merely just set an example. He's not doing it with the mindset of, okay, how's this gonna help me in my little kingdom here? He's doing it for the audience of one. He's doing it for God himself, and he is worshiping for God with all of his might. And this is significant for us to understand because worship doesn't just start and end with the dancing here. Sometimes, you know, we, we come to this and we go, okay, should we be dancing in church or whatever? Um, I'm not saying you should, okay, whatever. That's not the point. The point of it is, is that he was actually worshiping God before the dancing. He was worshiping God as he was studying God's word and he was wanting to know God's will for what they do. He was worshiping God as he was telling the people how we're gonna do it this time, how we're gonna move the ark. He was worshiping God throughout this process. And here we see just one way, one way that he was worshiping, that his ultimate heart was shown to the people as he is excited, as he is worshiping before the Lord with all of his might. And then it says that he was wearing a linen ephod. And the linen ephod, this was a priestly garment. It wasn't just something anybody could wear, it was for the priest. And it was uh, a pretty tight-fitting garment. It didn't have sleeves, and it just kind of went over you. But you couldn't put it on if you had all your other garments on it. So what would you do? You'd take off your outer garments and you'd put it over your basic garments, all right? So there's nothing wrong. There's nothing immodest or anything like that, all right? So he's putting on this. But the significant thing is that he took off his kingly robes. He took off the attire that demonstrated to everybody else that he was king and he was the rightful heir of the throne and all of these things, and he took that off. And he took it off and he put on that ephod, which demonstrates that he understands that the success to his kingdom, the success to his throne, the ultimate success of the nation is not dependent upon him being king. It's dependent upon the people, including himself, but all the people submitting to God as king. He had seen Saul. He had seen the reign of Saul and how Saul did not submit to God as king and how Saul was not a follower of God, was not a worshiper of God, and he saw how that ended. Saul relied on the robe. Saul relied on his title. But he did not rely on God, and to that he met a very tragic end. And his entire line was wiped out. David's different. He's a different king. And he understands that if God does not show up, then they're done for. If God does not show up in his reign, he's done for. If God does not show up in the life of the nation, they're done for. And sadly, the nation of Israel, has, had, they'd lived through multiple times where they had not been put in God first, where they had not loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. And it ended bad. And God had to sweep in and rescue them over and over again. But David's a different king. And he wants to make clear to the people that if God does not show up, they're done for. And if we are not that way as well, again, David's a good example here. I don't care if it's a marriage, I don't care if it's a job, I don't care what it is going on in life, we have to understand that if we are not completely dependent on God and if we do not seek his will in all things, then guess what? We might not necessarily have super bad motives as we get started out, but you know what the outcome's gonna be because we're not fully following God and seeking him? It's gonna end in some pain. It's gonna end in some mistakes. Our sin always hurts us and it always hurts others. And so David, he's a different king 
Not just is he an earthly king, he is more importantly a spiritual king. He's acting as a king of priests, which is a reminder of a greater king priest who would be to come. Verse 15 says, so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of trumpet. This is a big ordeal. This is a prey. This is like if there's a coronation or some great, great event, the whole nation's attention's on it. This is huge. The ark hasn't been around. David really hasn't seen the ark. For about 50 years, it's just kind of been obscure. Again, a few times throughout the reign of Saul in his early years, you kind of hear about the ark. They kind of try to do some things with it and then it fades into the distance. So that's been a pretty dark time, but now the ark, which of course signifies the presence of God, is coming into the nation, into the nation's capital. And as this is going on, as the parade's going on, as the procession's going on, as David is dancing, as the people are celebrating, as the instruments are all sounding, we kind of get a little zoom out, if you will. So the scene's still going on, the parade's still going on, but in verse 16, we kind of get a zoom out, all right? And then we get a look at Michael. It says in verse 16, it says, Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Well, that tells us a few things. One, she's not down there. She's up in the window. She's up in the house. She's not down there worshiping. She's not down there rejoicing that God's presence is coming into the nation. She's not down there worshiping before him. She's not excited that the people are turning to God. She's not excited that, God's pray, that all the prayers have been answered. No, what does she do? She despises David. She sees what he's doing and he says that, she says, that is stupid. I want nothing to do with that. And she's mad and she's angry. But again, the parade's going on. So can't you just picture Michael up in the window watching all that happening and just getting red in the face with anger? And then the scene just zooms right back on the, on the procession, all right? So don't forget about Michael. We'll get to her. But the, the author of this book, he introduces her. And then now we gotta get back to the parade here. What's something else about the window before I move on? False alarm, before I move on about the window. You know another time that David, Michael, and a window came up? It would have been in 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19, and so Saul is alive. This is during the reign of Saul. David and Michael, they're married and they're at the house and they get word that Saul is sending men to get David because Saul understands that God's forsaken him and that David will be the next king and Saul doesn't want that to happen and so he sends men to get David and what, is, what happens there? Well, Michael helps David escape through the window. All right, so we got another window going on. He helps Mike, she helps Michael escape, David escape through the window and then what happens? She goes out, she finds the idol, the household idol that she'd been keeping around. We don't know if David knew about it or not, but she knew about it. So she pulls it out, puts it in the bed, puts some nice goat hair. I guess she had some goat hair on hand or something. She puts the goat hair on top of the idol. So then when the men come in, they, you know, she says, hey, he's not feeling good. He's kind of sick, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of get out of it. Obviously, David doesn't die. But what do we see right there? Well, the author of the book of Samuel wants us to know that. Michael's not a follower of God. She's not a worshiper of God. She's got an idol. She's not trusting in God. And so it should be no surprise to us as we come to this chapter, this story, that she is angry when she sees David worshiping before the Lord. Verse 17 says, so they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. It says that David pitched a tent. This shows us that David was thorough 
And not just thorough in his conviction, he was thorough in his repentance and, and changing and turning to a new direction and doing things the right way. Because of how broken that he felt, recognizing that he failed to do the right thing and people got hurt because of it, he's going to God's word and he's not just studying to go, okay, how do I move the ark? How do I get the ark from point A to point B? How do I get it from Obed-Edom's house into the capital city without anybody dying? And if I can figure that out, then I'm good to go. That's not David's heart. That's how we are sometimes, right? We kind of try to just halfway do this, but David's thorough and he studies God's word and he does not just study how to reverently transport the ark. He studies how to reverently store the ark, to give the ark a place to abide. And so by going beforehand and ensuring that a tent was set up and ready, this shows that David's serious and he recognized the error of his ways and he wants to do it differently. It then says that they offered a peace offering. So once again, we see sacrifices. They are worshiping God, they're making sure that their own hearts are right before him and offering sacrifices. Of course, you're killing the animals, which was a reminder that they could not earn their salvation, that they were completely reliant upon God's mercy and grace. And by the sacrifices being offered is always a reminder that there was a future savior coming who would be shed and he would die and he would rise again and be the ultimate sacrifice for all mankind who will believe in him. We see that here. And so by offering those sacrifices, that's going on. But additionally, it says they're offering peace offerings. And the peace offering, those were celebratory. You didn't offer a peace offering just because you sinned. You would offer it to celebrate. And so actually what would happen is for these peace offerings, they would, they'd of course have to kill the animal. So they'd make the sacrifice, but then a majority of the meat would be returned to the people who, who did the sacrifices because it's, it's celebratory. They're rejoicing and they're feasting. And so we see, again, just the spiritual significance of this here. We see the heart of David and the people and we see that they recognize what God is doing, that God is blessing them, and they are rejoicing. Verse 18, when David had finished offering the burnt offering and peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. This means that David prayed for the nation of Israel. He prayed for them. Did Saul pray for the people? No, Saul didn't care about them. All Saul did was take, 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 take. And David, he wants to give. He wants to be a blessing to them. But he recognizes that even as good as he behaves, it's nothing compared to the blessing of God. And he wants God to be first and foremost in this nation and in the people. And so he prays for him. And I'm pretty sure his heart was lined up with what we would call the great Shema, Deuteronomy chapter six, where, where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that's what we see in David. In this moment, in this time, he loves the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and all his strength. And he wanted the nation to be a nation that was completely submissive to the rule of God. It reminds me of Joshua Right, so you get Moses, he's the one that led the Israelites out of bondage, out of captivity in Egypt, and then Moses' successor was Joshua. And towards the end of Joshua's life, the people of Israel, being people as they are, kind of like you and I, they're kind of a little divided in, in who they're following and who they're worshiping, and Joshua reaches a point where he says, choose for yourselves this day who you are going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. Joshua's saying at the end of the day, you guys, you know what? If you wanna do what you wanna do and take that consequence and take all that result, then go for it. But Joshua's saying, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. What do we see with David? As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And guess what? 
David was king of Israel. And therefore, because of that, he was in a position that God had put him and God had required of the king to make sure that the people followed God as well. And we see David, that's his heart. He wants to serve God. He wants to glorify God. And guess what? He wants other people to do it too. When you know Jesus Christ as your savior, when you, when you have admitted it to you, that you have sinned and that Jesus is sa- and asked him to come into your life, you know what happens? You don't just wanna keep it to yourself. You wanna see your family, your friends, your neighbors come to know Christ as savior. You want other people to experience victory over sin. And that's what we see with David. He wants to share with people and he prays for them. He wants to bless them. But in demonstration of his desire to bless the people, and ask God's blessing on it. We see in verse 19, it says, further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to their house. What's going on here is David is opening up the royal storehouse. He is giving to the people all the royal delicacies, the finest foods that usually would have been reserved for the people in your cabinet, to the people who, who helped get you to be king, who, who helped make sure nobody else came in and killed you or whatever, like you would give it to your choice people, the top of the top, the people that were really on your inner circle. But David is a greater king, pointing us to a greater savior, Jesus Christ. And David, what does he do here? He opens it up to everybody. He doesn't have prejudice. He understands that just as he worshiped before all of them and alongside of all the people, that he wants to make sure that they also, that they can feast together. And David has no prejudice. He wants all people, regardless of class, to be blessed. And it's a reminder that Jesus Christ, he has died and he rose again to pay the penalty for our sins so that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just as David wanted his people to be blessed, how much greater does God want us to experience his blessing? And we see as well, right, we talk about how you are supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, but what's the second part to that? And then you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. David, because he loved God first, he was able to properly love others as well. Well, now we get the scene ended, so cut that scene, and now we get a new scene over here in verse 20. We don't just get a look at Michael from a distance. We're seeing firsthand what's going on there. In verse 20, it says, but when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. David's not even home yet. He is on his way to his house and Michael is so mad, she is so frustrated and ultimately she hates God so much that she lashes out there and she starts cutting into David. And she's yelling at him and she's accusing him of some pretty strong things. And it's notable here, if you look at it, it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Previously, back in 1 Samuel, if you, if you read about Michael, she's always referred to as the wife of David. But here we see that that whole relationship thing is not exactly panning out. And now she is referred here as the daughter of Saul. And the author, I truly believe, wants us to see that she is of the spiritual lineage of Saul. And so she accuses him. And she says, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. Note the sarcasm. Also note that she's talking to him in the third person. She's not saying, hey, you, you, you. No, 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 it's the king it's kind of like when you're a kid and you're mad at your sibling. I did this sometimes where you're mad at your sibling 
And so you're talking to your mom as your sibling is right there, and you say, mom, let that other child of yours know uh, that they are dead to me. I'm not saying you should say this, okay, but sinner Luke here, uh, they're dead to me, and I want nothing to do with them, uh, to which I would always get reproved as well for, for that language. But that's what you do, right? When you're childless, when you're being just like a child, you're immature, and you talk to people in third person. That's what we see of Michael here. This is not flattering in, in any ways whatsoever that she can't even talk to David one-on-one. And she's he's using the third person. He uncovered himself. That's what she's saying. She's saying, the king uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant's maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. And her accusation here, if we're gonna understand it properly, we have to think back to the fact that David wore a linen ephod, the priestly garment. And what did he have to do in order to wear that? In order to be worn properly and to fit on him, he had to take off the kingly garment. And Michael doesn't like that. Because then furthermore, not only did David take off that robe that demonstrated his power and authority, he put on the spiritual garment as he worshiped before the Lord. And you know who he was worshiping with? The servant maids. The lowliest of the low. When you talk about the, you know, all the staff at the the royal castle, if you will, these were at the bottom of the food chain. They're at the bottom of the organizational chart. And David is worshiping with them. He is with them. Like Jesus Christ, right, who did not just stay in heaven, but he came down. So too did David come down to worship with people because David understood that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And at the end of the day, he is no better than who they are. And so that is Michael's accusation. It's mean, it's cutting. But a lot of her hatred and anger for David are partially to David, but you know what it also is? It's also to God. And David just happens to be the one who's serving God and loves God, and so he is taking the brunt of some of this. But don't, don't mistake it here. Yeah, she's mad at David. But why was she mad at him? Because she saw him worshiping before the Lord. In verse 21, David gets a word in, all right? So she lets off all her fury, all of her hatred, all that, and Verse 21, so David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. David is, I mean, he is completely dismissing her. He is completely saying, this is ridiculous. First off, the logic you're using here, the entire narrative of why you just attacked me, it's of the same mindset as your father Saul. And you know where your father Saul is? He's dead. And one of your brothers is king, right? Oh, no, no, he's not because he's dead as well. Oh, okay, yeah, there's another descendant of Saul. No, they won't. Why? The line of Saul was gone. The only one left was Mephibosheth. And he, was, he could not walk, and therefore he could not be king because the king had to lead the people out into battle. And so David is just smacking this down by saying that line of Saul, that, that whole mindset there, that false worship is done for. That's not me. And guess what? God said it. They're done. Saul is no more, and his household is gone. So again, he's kind of bringing that up. Okay, you know what? Your dad, eh, not so great. Didn't do well. And that God has appointed me to rule over the people of Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. 
He's saying, Michael, if you did not like what you saw today, then buckle up, because there's gonna be a whole lot more. I was worshiping before the Lord. I wasn't dancing to gain approval. I wasn't doing these things so that people would like me or follow me. I was doing it because I recognized, I didn't get it right the first time, but I recognized I need God, and if I don't have God, I've got nothing. Again, it goes to show in our lives, all that we do should not be for human approval. Because you know what happens with human approval? It's ultimately of the world. And as we seek to live for God, they're gonna think we're fools. And so if we're living for the approval of the world, you know what we're gonna end up doing? We're gonna compromise on God's word. We're gonna compromise on God's standards. And then we're gonna live as fools in the eyes of God. And David, he's not compromising here. Not this time. He's okay being a fool in the eyes of the world so that he can be wise in the eyes of the God of the universe. Verse 22, I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. He is just lathering it on and he is saying once again, you don't like me worshiping with those maids? There's nothing improper going on there. Why? Because they're worshiping before the Lord. They are praising God for his deliverance and for his promises that he has kept and he's gonna continue to, he won't be the king that thinks other people should not even talk to him or see him or be around him. He doesn't have prejudice in this moment. He recognizes that all are sinners and therefore all can worship God if they come to him the right way. So here we see that Michael is really no wife of David. She is more of a daughter of Saul. And then verse 23, interesting ending. Interesting ending, and this is where our story concludes for this morning. It says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. And as we look at that verse, it is easy for us, I did it, and it's not totally wrong to try to wonder why. Why was this the case? And there's a couple good probable reasons for why Michael had no child. But we're not told exactly why she couldn't have children, but we are told the result of her not having any children. Think about it. If Michael, the daughter of Saul, had a child, and if that child was a man, then that child, the man, would have been able to be on the throne after his father David was off the scene. And if that were to happen, then guess what? You'd have a grandson of Saul leading the people of Israel, and it's clear that Michael is no follower of God, and so more than likely, that son would not have been a follower of God either, and then the entire nation oh, they would have been right back to Saul. They would have been right back to where that was. All the work that had been done, it would have been gone. But actually more significantly, God had ended the house of Saul. And we are told in Genesis 3.15 that there would be one to come who would save the entire world. Genesis 3.15, this is the first hint of the gospel. God is saying to the serpent, right after the fall of mankind, right after Adam and Eve sinned, and right after they started to experience the consequences of their sin, you know what God says? He says, and I will make enemies of you to the serpent and the woman, and of your offspring and of her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. If you get hit very hard in the foot, it's gonna hurt. I'm assuming, I haven't, I haven't had that happen yet, all right? But I'm assuming it hurts, but it's not fatal. But what is fatal? A strike to the head. And we see here the first glimmers of a coming Messiah who would crush Satan. He would crush Satan. 
Reminds us of 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That coming Messiah, the seed of the woman, a promise is Genesis 3.15. At this point in our reading, and this point in our study of the book of 2 Samuel, we cannot clearly identify whose line that Messiah would come from. But you know what we can say? Not Saul. It is not coming from Saul at all, which makes us wonder, well, where is the promised Messiah going to come from? Whose household will he be from? Well, we know that God wants somebody who's after his own heart. We know that God, ultimately, by sending his Messiah, is gonna save the whole world for all who believe. And so David follows through. As we draw this thing to a close, as we've now looked at the story, we've looked at the good and the bad, we, we realize that actually a lot of time was given on Michael. It started out with the ark, started out with the worship service, if you will, and you know where it ends? It ends with Michael and David. And it ends with us looking at both of those people, which should make us wonder, where am I right now? There might be some of you that you're a lot more like Michael. You come to church, maybe you do some great things, but ultimately your objective, your heart, is to use God because you actually have your own agenda and you're ultimately worshiping yourself and you don't wanna worship God. And so therefore, you're an unbeliever. You might be like Michael. Or we might have somebody here who, what we just read and looked at with David, it resonates with you well, right? You would, you would say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I understand I'm a sinner. I understand that my only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. So I've asked him into my life and, and he's changed me and he's working at me, but I still mess up. Well, here's our reminder that regardless of how we get started, God always always, always, always wants us to come back to him and do things the right way. And if we're truly repentant, sometimes we get caught in the wrong situation and we do a half repentance and we don't go to God's word and we don't truly see God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what that is an indicator of? We haven't really truly repented and we're not a true worshiper of God in that moment. We're living in sin. And so maybe you're like David. Maybe right now you just got some stuff going on and you haven't started the right way. What's the example of David tell us here to go back to God. That's what we learn about God in this passage, that he accepts David's return, that he accepts when we come to him on God's own terms. He's merciful. Or maybe you're somebody, right now you believe you're being faithful and you're doing the right things, and guess what? That's possible, right? We can do that as believers in Christ. We can live for him because Jesus has defeated the power of sin over our life. So in so much that we submit to him and walk by the spirit, then we don't have to satisfy the desires of the flesh and we can live for him here on earth, but it won't be perfect. But if we're gonna take away anything from this morning and from this passage, here's what we ought to take away. The mark of being a true follower of God is that you continually turn from sin, submit to him, and seek him above all else. Let me say that, but I'm gonna change a word on you. I said follower, and I'm gonna switch it with worshiper. Follow worshiper, same thing. So the mark of being a true worshiper of God is that you continually turn from your sin, submit to him, and seek him above all else. We see in David that he's a human being and he is seeking God. And as we too seek to live for God, we mess it up, but that's just part of our growth process, right? And as we mess up, as we do the wrong things, as we sin, what do we do? We go back to God over and over again. It says in Proverbs, what does it say in Proverbs? A righteous person falls seven times and gets up again. And as Christians, a lot of times we kind of got some skinned up knees, it feels like, you know? But we just keep on getting up by the power of Christ and living for him, and he has done that. And so we see two ways Two ways that David sought to live for God above all else. Two ways. First off, he sought to live according to God's word. He sought to live according to God's word. 
When it comes to living a life fully devoted to God, truly following him and truly worshiping him, if you're starting to pick and choose where you're going to obey God, you've missed the point and you're living in sin. And guess what? You're gonna have to deal with some consequences of that. God in his wisdom has given us his word and when we follow it, guess what? We experience blessing, we experience so many great things here on earth. We don't experience perfection, but guess what? When you love your spouse the way that God has called you to, guess what? They're gonna see God's love through you. And in a marriage, if both spouses love each other the way that God has designed and called them to, you know what you're gonna have? You're gonna have a good marriage. Does our, does our world present a good view of marriage? No. And are we dealing with that? Absolutely. So whether it's a marriage, whether it's a career, wherever you are right now, you have to ask yourself, are you seeking to live fully according to God's word? How you treat people in a career is important. Do you treat people as a stepping stone or do you treat them like David does and you care for them? You are not above them, you are humble. That's important. But secondly, we saw that David sought to love God above all else and that he sought to live in submission to God. David understood that he might have had those kingly garments. He might be the rightful king. He might be the one that God has called and raised up to be king over the nation of Israel. But if he rejects God, God will reject him. He saw that example in Saul. And David knows that if God does not show up in his own life on a daily basis, he will fall. And if he reached a point where he did fall and he did sin, then he would be just as much reliant on the grace and mercy of God as you and I are. But we saw that David loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all the strength. So for us, if you wanna live for God right now, today, if you wanna live truly and fully for God, you know what? It starts with getting in God's word. Reading God's word, it's his revelation to us. The Holy Spirit has preserved the word of God so that when we read it, even in our English translations, guess what? We are reading the word of God. God has revealed himself to us. He is not hidden from us, but guess what? If your Bible's dusty or the app on your phone hasn't been opened in a while, guess what? Well, you're not truly seeking to live for God. But here's something else as well. If you truly wanna to seek to live for God, you're gonna find that as you get into his word that you wanna live for him. And as you come with the objective, yeah, I wanna live for God, but then as you take the step, the necessary steps to get into his word, to seek his will, to spend time in prayer, you're gonna find out that you wanna live for him even more. You see that? As we wanna live for God, and as we wanna get in his word, those things go hand in hand. And as we do those, we experience slow but assured spiritual growth. So the question for us then is, do you seek God? Are you seeking God with everything in you right now in this moment? Let me ask it another way. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Remember that the mark of a true worshiper of God is that you continually turn from your sins, submit to him, and seek him above all else. That's where are you at right now? Is there something going on in your life that you are struggling with? Is there something going on with your life where you are trying to just find encouragement to continuing on in God's word? to continue on even if you're not necessarily seeing things happen according to your definition. We do that as humans, don't we? We want God to show up, we want God to work in our own way. But what does it come to and what does David show us as well? That if we just continually turn to him, repent of any of our error, and on a daily basis seek him above all else, guess what? We're gonna experience God's blessing. You know what one of the greatest blessings of God is? Fellowship with him. That the God of the universe has spoken, spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld the glory of the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. We have Jesus Christ. And we all need him in our lives on a daily basis. For some of you, you need him because you've never had him. And for some of you, you have him, 
but you need to continue to depend on him. Is that you today? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you give us the example that you tell us in your word where people do the right thing and people do the wrong thing. And as we look at the life of David, God, I ask right now that we would be convicted that if there's anything in our life that ought not to be there, that we would put that off and that we'd put on you, that we would rely on you, that we would submit to you, that we would fully depend on you. I ask if there's anybody here that is a lot like Michael, that is not a follower of you, that is not a worshiper of you, that has never turned to you in repentance and humility and ask you to save them from their sins, I pray that right now today would be the day of salvation. And we ask for those who are seeking to live faithful and um, and they're doing just that, they're, they're doing the right things with the right heart and the right motive that they would experience encouragement and protection from the temptation that will certainly befall them. And so God, may we be a people who are defined by you, defined by our love for you and our dependence upon you. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, amen.